0: Thank you for joining us today. We are continuing and really finishing out our series over the book of Revelation. This is a series we've done over the course of the last three weeks. This is the fourth study on it. And, you know, it's tough to cover the fullness of the book of Revelation, a book that's filled with such imagery and symbolism and uh, so many uh, themes, uh, theological themes. It's tough to cover it all and, and for messages, but we've done our best. We've been looking at it through an idealist perspective, meaning we're looking at the themes of the book, the symbolisms and, and the imagery, and we're seeing what what and why they're there. We're not really trying to get too deep in the who and the where and the when and, and, and things like that. We're just seeing what Jesus is trying to tell us through the book of Revelation. And today we're coming to the to the penultimate conclusion of the book, that it's a book of hope, that it's a book that details the ultimate victory that comes uh, through God, through the, through the means of Christ, and the way that he uh, comes and re- is going to return and, and bring a f- uh, an end to the physical realm as we know it, to usher in his perfect new heaven and new earth and so I hope today as we finish this out you you are excited about the book of Revelation that you're excited about the ultimate victory that's found within it and that it leads you to to just to desire nothing more than the ultimate eventual existence that we'll have with God before we open up the message this morning before we get into the text I I just wanna begin with a word of prayer first and and then we'll get into our study this morning. Father God, thank you for your word, for the revelation of your word, for the revelation, for the vision of your victory. God, we know that through Jesus, you have provided a bridge for us from this physical realm that is doomed to, to be destroyed. And we know that through him, we now have a way to your kingdom that lasts forever and God I just pray that this today that as we study your word that you make us excited for your final coming for the kingdom that you have promised us God help us to live for that kingdom to proclaim it to be excited over it help us to anticipate it more greatly than anything else in this life God, we love you so much. I just pray that we live out that love that we have for you. Thank you for the love you have for us, and it's it's in this love that we study and gather together, and I pray that you speak through me today in delivering this message. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, I, I started this series out on Revelation, talking about how I so desperately didn't I didn't, when I was younger, want to think about revelation. I didn't want to think about the end times, and when I was younger, I, I really thought, you know, I could prevent the end from coming by thinking about it. You know, I, I was consumed with trying my best to not to to, to prevent Jesus from coming because because that scared me. The end terrified me, and and growing as, as I was younger. When I thought about Revelation, I thought of it in terms of fear and anxiety, of dread. And, and, and that kind of was what was at the forefront of my mind when I thought about the book of Revelation. As I got older, I, I, I still didn't really long for Revelation to come to fruition. I still didn't really long for the kingdom of God to occur, for Christ to return, but it was for a different reason. It wasn't necessarily because I was afraid of that, but because I was like, I, I didn't want it to come because I had something else planned that day, um, or because I was waiting for this big event to happen. Uh, and, and I don't know if any of you have ever been like this, where you, where I, I don't know if you've consciously thought about it like I have, but I, I think that sometimes we get so consumed and, and excited about the things of this world that we kind of put God on the back burner. And sometimes, even without realizing it, we are more excited about the things of this world than we are about the things of heaven, about the, the eternal things. And and for me, a lot of times, what I used to be so, and, and still a little bit today, what I used to be super excited about was movies. I I, I loved the hype around big movies that were coming out specifically superhero movies or science fiction movies and i would read all of the different forums and all the different announcements of of a movie that was coming out or or who was going to act in and what and, and how who was writing it and when it was supposed to come on screens and i would go to the midnight premieres i'd i'd get all amped up for these movies and and uh and I would get super excited for them, and nothing could take precedence over me getting to finally see this movie that I've been waiting for for years. And, and growing up, my favorite movies, my favorite, um, I, I guess, were that that were those that were involved with DC Comics, which is Superman, Batman, uh, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, all, all those superheroes belong to the DC universe. And I remember I was a junior in high school, and I was sitting in my science class and I was on the internet and I saw an announcement as a junior in high school that they were going to be making a Justice League movie within the next six years and six years that's a long time to speculate and, and come up with ideas and, and really really anticipate a movie or, or a storyline and I can remember for six years I waited for this movie to come out I, I read every kind of rumor that came out who was going to be acting uh, who, who was going to play, be playing which part, what storyline they were going to be using. And finally, about two years ago, or three years ago, and I can't remember exactly how long it was. it was, it was my first year actually here at Freedom they released the Justice League movie to theaters. And I had been building and building and building up and I can consciously remember this wasn't the first time I had this thought, but I can consciously remember having the thought about this movie, thinking, Okay, Jesus, please don't come until after I see this movie. And and it's sad to say, but that's not the first time I've had that thought. I've had that thought about baseball seasons, I've had that thought about other movies, about about big exciting events that I've been wanting to to participate in and, and I can explicitly remember, for the Justice League movie, having that thought for like two weeks leading up to it, Jesus, please don't come until I see this movie. Please don't come until I see this movie. And I went and saw it on the midnight premiere, and I went to to see the movie, and I sat down for two and a half hours to watch this movie, and the movie was over. I left the theater, and I can remember thinking to myself, I asked Jesus not to, re- come, to return to for that movie. <laughs> I had built up all this anticipation. I'd been waiting for this movie and I mean the movie was fine but I can remember walking out of the theater thinking why would I hold up this movie? Why would I gain more excitement and anticipation for what I just saw than for the return of Jesus? And that was kind of when I had that, that moment and, and here recently You know, I've I've not really had that thought. I guess the Justice League movie did that for me. It made me realize that there's not really anything worth getting excited for in this world that we place above the return of Jesus. And the thing is, we have this tendency to do that a lot. Not just with movies, but it's, so easy with the luxury, with, with the incredible things that we have in, in our lives here, especially in America, but in the world in general, with the technology that's being produced, with all the, with, with, with all the new things that are released, with all the movies that are being put out, with all the, the stories. that are, There's just so much in this world that we have to live for here. And that makes it incredibly difficult to focus and anticipate and hope for eternity. And then when you add also all the things that make it hard to live here, all the anxiety, all the dread, all the worry, all the fear, when you put those two together, you either are super excited for something and all you want to focus on is what you're excited for, or you're super bummed and worried and, and anxious about something, and all you can do is focus on that. So you either have the negative side or the positive side, and you cling to those things so much so that it's impossible for you to think about the godly things, to think about the kingdom, about the return of Jesus, about an eternity with him. And so I, I know this is a harrowing question, but, but why is that the case? Why, why do we so desperately cling both to the positives and the negatives of life here? Why, why are we so desperate to hold ourselves to this world? Especially as Christians, why is it so difficult for us to long for what God has promised us rather than the things of this world? Now, the book of Revelation is the promise of God. It's the fulfillment of the ultimate promise of God. You, know, you have promises of God that were fulfilled from the Old Testament prophecy, like the coming of Jesus... the the nation, Israel bringing Jesus to the nations. You, You have all these prophecies in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled throughout history. Revelation is the penultimate promise of God's people being with him for eternity. That's the promise that we have in Revelation. That's the promise that we've been studying here over the last three weeks. But in order to achieve that promise... In order to achieve the promise, the ultimate promise of God, in order to have the ultimate victory of eternity, <laughs> the things of this world that we cling to have to be destroyed. L- listen, we're turning now Revelation chapter 18 and starting in verse, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it said. It says, "After I saw another angel after, after this I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen, she has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy. From her sensuality in excess. Now the point of that passage there is we're now getting introduced into the destruction of the world. And from an idealist perspective, from someone that's reading this as all imagery and symbolism to point to theological themes, what we're seeing is that Babylon the Great represents the sin of the world. And it says here that all the nations have drunk the wine for sexual immorality, meaning everyone on earth, humanity as a whole, has been seduced by sin. Babylon the Great represents the, the fullness of sin, the fullness of corruption, the fullness, fullness of, of greed, of conflict, of strife, of evil, of everything that is in opposition to God. That's what Babylon the Great represents from an idealist perspective, and, and John is saying all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which means everyone has been enticed by this sin, that, that it has fallen, uh, or that, that, that Babylon the Great has, has engaged in the fullness of the sin and the corruption that was brought into existence through the fall of the dragon as we saw last week, the spiritual fall of the dragon, and the physical fall of humanity. Okay, so last week we saw that the spiritual war that's been happening outside of our physical senses has been going on It brought in sin and evil whenever Adam and Eve physically engaged with sin and and desired something other than themselves. And as a result, over history, human history, We now get to this point in Revelation where the fullness of sin is at its peak. That all nations have engaged with the sin of Babylon the Great. Everyone has taken part of the sin. And and we see that the angel is ushering in this proclamation that Babylon the Great is going to fall. That all the sin, all the corruption, all the things that have wrapped itself up into the creation of the world are about to be destroyed. And we can look at the world today, and we can pretty easily assess that the world is growing in sin, that we're growing in an opposition, in an antithesis of of who God is. We're growing in the initial sin of the Garden of Eden. And, and what I mean by that is, is you don't have to go far to see that everyone is focused on self. And I think that is one of, I, I think the foundation of sin is selfishness. Foundation of sin is selfishness. And today, and it's going to keep growing and growing, there's this view of something called postmodernism postmodernism is a f- philosophical notion that truth is subjective that everyone can choose their own morality everyone can choose what's right and wrong everyone can choose what what they think is good everyone can choose you know feeling is subjective it, 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 everything is subjective that it's all up to you and i i bring up this postmodern view because the world is falling into this. And it's becoming just, just popular. It, it, it's becoming unanimous that we teach postmodernism, that, that, that we have to you know, say, say to people, well, you can believe what you want to believe because you know, truth is subjective. Or, or you can think what you want to think is right because morality is subjective. You can act how you want to act because you know, right and wrong is up to you. That's called postmodernism, and the thing is, that viewpoint that is starting to take over humanity is the viewpoint that doomed humanity in the first place. When Adam and Eve saw the fruit and thought, you know what, that looks good to me, even though God said it wasn't good. And they thought, you know what, I want to to be the the, the, the determining factor of right from wrong. I want to choose right from wrong. I want to know right from wrong. I want to choose it myself. I want to be in charge. That's selfishness. That's wanting to choose your own morality. And and they said, I want to have my own desires. I want to choose my own desires over God. That's, That's selfishness. So the entire premise of the fall within Adam and Eve is the entire premise of what the world's going into. We don't have to look far to see that we have become or are rapidly becoming Babylon the Great. That we are entering into this sin, this haunt of humanity. We are leaving behind completely what God desired for his creation and as a result we now we, we come to the end of chapter 18 you know we see at the beginning of chapter 18 why babylon the great is going to fall because it's a haunt because 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 humanity has completely drunken and fallen into the en, en, ensnarement of sin that happened at the garden and we see now what is going to happen because we've fallen into that at the end of Chapter 18, it says, Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way Babylon the great will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all those slaughtered on the earth." Okay, that passage there is, the point of that passage is to show us at the beginning, the angel picked up a stone, a large millstone, dropped it into the sea. A large millstone. Once you throw it into water, it's just going to keep sinking and sinking and sinking and sinking, meaning it will be gone forever. Once it hits the bottom of the sea, it's not coming back. God is saying, through this example of the angel, through this physical act of the angel, You know, in the beginning of 18, he's saying humanity has reached the peak of its sin. It is completely engaged with why they fell in the first place. And now, it all must be destroyed. All must fall. All must go away in order for all to be created once again. All must fall in order for all to be created again. Once again, and, and I think the best way to think of this, to see that the angel is throwing this large stone into the sea so that everything goes away, the best way to think of this is if you are baking a pie or if you are grilling some steaks and you leave the steaks on the grill for too long or you leave the pie in the oven for too long and you end up burning most of it, You know, if you spend a lot of money on those steaks or if you spend a lot of time on that pie, you're not just going to take it out of the oven and toss the entire thing out, But you're going to kind of cut off what you can save, eat it, and enjoy what you can eat, and throw the rest out. Because the rest of it is completely corrupted, completely disgusting, completely the opposite of what you had intended. So you keep what came out the way you wanted and throw the rest of it out. That is what's happening with creation. Creation, through what we see in in verses 1 through 3 of Babylon the Great, has fallen completely away from God. And so now, God's dropping the millstone into the sea to throw it all out. But, as we see in in chapter 20, he's keeping, he's saving what he can. Listen to what he says in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open." another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what is written in the books. Then, C gave up their, then the sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so here's, here's what we're seeing now in this part here. We know that At the end of chapter 18, God is saying, I'm throwing it all away. All must fall. All must be destroyed. All must go away. So he's taking what he had made and seeing the corruption that had accumulated in what he had made, and he's tossing it all out. But here we're seeing that he's cutting out the parts, the parts that didn't get corrupted. He's cutting out the parts that didn't get corrupted. It says... Then the sea gave up the, their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them, and each was judged according to their works. So he's pulling the people of hum- He's pulling out humanity. He's judging them one by one. He's saying, you know, I've thrown away the creation I've made, but I just want to see what it is that is salvageable, what it is that I can have, what it is that isn't corrupted, what it is that is maintained. And the way that he was able to the you know, the the measuring stick that he used in order to determine what could be saved, with anyone whose name was not found in the written was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So those who don't have Christ's spirit, those who weren't saved by Christ's act, those who didn't give their lives and live out their lives for Christ, those are the ones that are falling into the sea never to return. Those are the ones that are you know, going along with the fate of the physical realm. He's keeping what didn't go to the corruption of the world and throwing out what did. And this text here, this verse here, Anyone whose name was not found and written in the book of judgment is is thrown into the lake of fire. That single text there, that single verse, is a lot of times what people who aren't Christians and sometimes people who are look to and say, you know what, I'm not worshiping a God who's wrathful. I'm not worshiping a God who's vengeful. I'm not worshiping a God who just dooms humanity to the lake of fire just because they, they, they don't want to worship him. This text here, this verse here, a lot of times people use to say that God is an angry, mean, vengeful, non-compassionate God. I, I see it as the opposite. Because here's the thing. There were qualifications for why God saved the people he did, why God is saving the people he did. And the qualification was that you had to have your name written on the book. You had to have Christ's spirit within you. If you didn't have Christ's spirit within you, then you weren't, you, you weren't going to be saved. And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God doesn't care for you. It's not because God doesn't want to save you. It's because you would be incapable of being in his presence in the first place. And so really, God throwing you into the lake of fire instead of bringing you into his glory is mercy. Here's why. Listen to, to chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. He... It says in, in, in verse verse 3, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will be with them. He himself will be with them and will be their God. You know, it is impossible for someone to be in the presence of God if the presence of God is not within them. It is, we are incapable of withstanding the glory of God If the glory of God, if the Spirit of God is not within us. So God throwing out the people that aren't written in the book of life, God throwing out the people who don't have Christ's Spirit within them, is mercy. Because they wouldn't be able to withstand for all of eternity the presence of God in the first place. And so God is saying, listen, those that have fallen into the corruption of the world, those who have have been filled by the sin that has plagued the world, and who have not chosen to have the Spirit of Christ within them, they have to go to the fate of the world, because they can't stand to be with me. And it's better for them to cease to exist than to live for eternity in a dwelling place that would bring them perpetual agony. So it's not that God hates humanity. It's not that God is vengeful and spiteful and without compassion. It's that he knows that if we don't share in his spirit, we can't share in his presence for all of eternity. It would be like saying, expecting someone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ within them to live with God for eternity would be like expecting someone who had never ran for a second in their life to go out and run a marathon without walking. It's not possible. You, you can't live in the presence of God if you haven't had the Spirit of Christ within you. God knows that. And so he's saying, those of you that have had the corruption of the world, of the physical realm of my creation that has been corrupted within you, you have to go the way that it's going. You have to be destroyed. You have to cease to exist because you can't exist with me for eternity. It's not possible. However... For for us as Christians, that verse, you know, for for someone that's not a Christian, the verse that God's going to be dwelling with his people for humanity, for for all of eternity, you know, that that's harrowing because, well, if you don't have the spirit of Christ within you, you can't dwell with him. But if you have the spirit of Christ within you, that verse is is beautiful. It's, It's astounding. You know, we've had the Spirit of Christ within us. We somewhat comprehend who, who God is. We've, we've felt God's Spirit moving within us. But for all of eternity, we're going to see Him. That's incredible. That, that, that's what we long for. That is the goal of our faith. And John is saying, it's going to happen. God has promised it. God has shown it to me. God has, has given me the ultimate victory. This is exciting. This is hopeful. There's nothing to worry. If you're a believer, revelation is a beautiful picture of what is coming. This past uh, Thursday, when we, were, we had a funeral for, for Mary Lester. It was a beautiful funeral. It was a great celebration of what she is now a part of in, in God's kingdom. And during the, the funeral message, Wendell gave an illustration of, of a pastor who had um, who who was giving a sermon to a, a packed uh, sanctuary, a packed congregation about the coming of Jesus, about the excitement of the coming of jesus and, and he said at the conclusion of his sermon, "Who wants to go to heaven and everyone in this packed sanctuary raised their hand, except for one young boy at the top of the balcony at the top of the sanctuary and, and he, the, the pastor could see that he didn't raise his hand, so he looked up at the boy and he said, Why, why is your hand not going up, son? Why, why don't you want to go to heaven? And the boy said, I, I want to go to heaven. I just thought you were taking a load up right now. I thought you were trying to go now. That's a humorous illustration to think about. But <laughs> I think we connect with that on more ways than one. I want to go to heaven, but you know... Can he just come a little bit later? I, I just really want to, to see this movie. I just really want to get this new iPhone. I just really want to spend some more quality time with my family. I want to go to heaven. I want to be in eternity. I want to be in the kingdom. But first, you know, if that's our attitude of Christians, I don't think we're fully comprehending what eternity is what we receive in it, what the victory looks like. Listen here to uh, Revelation 22. It says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. That's that's what we have waiting for us. That's the eternity that we have. And if your attitude like, is, is how mine was when I was younger, of, of fear of not wanting the end to come, or of, of saying, just, just wait a little bit longer until this happens, then I don't think you're realizing the excitement of it. I'm ashamed to say that that was my attitude at one point, but I'm so excited now for what is coming. For what God is bringing, for what God is working, for the ultimate victory that He has promised. As eager as we should be for it to come, we have to remember that the point of revelation isn't to know when it's coming, it's not to, to have a map so that we can kind of build up and stockpile and prepare for the end. Because the truth is, we don't know when. The victory is coming. Listen, I want to close out with this this passage from Matthew 24. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, Now concerning the day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except for the Father alone. As in the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Now, Here's the point of that passage. Revelation is a beautiful picture of what we have to hope for, but it's not a map as to when our hope is coming. Revelation is is not some hidden picture that we have to dissect in order to know when it's coming. It's a promise that it's coming. It's a promise that the victory is at hand that Babylon the Great will fall, that sin and corruption in this world that has been corrupted, that it will be thrown into the sea to exist no more, and that those who have Christ's uncorruptible spirit within them will be in eternity. That's the promise. And so while we wait here, even though we don't know when it's coming, let's fill our time with excitement over its coming, Let's live our lives in anticipation of his coming. Let it be on the forefront of our minds. Let it guide our actions. Don't worry about this life. Don't let the negativity of this life consume you. Don't let the positivity, the exciting things, the the huge things, don't let them draw you in. But live this life in an expectation of, and excitement about what is coming. That's the purpose of our faith, and I hope that that is what you are doing as you live out yours. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the love that you have for us, for the promise of your return, of your victory that is given to us through Revelation. God, help us to live for that promise every single day. To wake up in the morning and think, God, I cannot wait for you to come. God, I cannot wait to be in your presence. God, I cannot wait to witness your glory. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be with you forever. We love you so much. Thank you for your son, for his spirit within us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Live for eternity, not for any aspect of today, but for what you know is coming, for the victory that you know has been won. Remember to join us on Wednesday nights for our time of family Bible study. The video will be posted. The link will be posted to Facebook, and the video will be posted on YouTube at 5 o'clock. You can watch it at any time and the the discussion guide will be in the description as well. Hope to see you, or for you to join us on Wednesday, and to see you again next Sunday as we start a new series um, now that we've concluded Revelation. Remember, live for eternity. Have a good week.